just a, a few moments, uh, we have a guest speaker who's going to come and join us. His name is Lance Ford, and you are in for a great, uh, challenging, enlightening uh, message this morning. Uh, Lance is a, an author, a church planter, uh, and is a part of a number of different networks and organizations that helps to facilitate church planters as well as dialogue about what the church is supposed to look like, how we are supposed to look like as individual followers of Jesus and our own communities. Uh, if you remember about, about six to eight weeks ago, Brad Briscoe came and spoke, and Brad and Lance had offer, authored a book that some of you have read called The Missional Quest. Uh, in fact, a couple of our community groups are going through that book or going through kind of the partner resource, which is called Missional Essentials. And it's, it's, a, it's a journey that challenges us not as a church as a whole, but as individual followers of Jesus, which make up the church, how we are living out mission through our lives. And so this morning, Lance is going to come, and, and you're gonna, I know it's, it's going to be challenging. It's, it's going to push you a little bit. You're going to be encouraged and, but you're, as well. You're gonna, it's going to make you think. Because we're in this journey. If you've been part of the church the last couple of years, 18 months, we're in an, an amazing time of transition and change and transformation. And that's part of it. God is shifting us to be more aligned with what he's doing in our community, how he wants to use us in, as, in terms of how we follow him. And the dialogue and conversation that Lance is a part of and has actually helped being spearhead in the body of Christ is part of the dialogue that God has brought us into because God is doing more than just what he's doing at New Hope. He's doing something in the body of Christ to really get into the world and to live out mission in practical ways. So would you say good morning and welcome Lance as he comes and speaks with us this morning. All right. Thanks, John. Good morning. Usually, I, uh, if I've like say two or three sentences, people hear enough already for me to know I'm not from around here. So, um, I just get that out of the way. So I'm a Texan. So, don't hold that for me or against me. It's like, hey, anybody from Texas? Anybody grew up in Texas? Wow, I'm sorry for all of y'all. Your redemption draws nigh, trust me. So, um, I uh, say it's, it's important, the reason I mentioned I'm from Texas, but, but, I, but I've lived in Missouri for, golly, 24 years. Uh, and uh, it's important that we know where we're from, where we come from. And I, and I think that, that, that one of our big issues in, uh, as Christians is that we quickly, or we never actually really learn where we come from. And the New Testament really teaches us that we're not from around here. Amen? We're not from around here. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I remember uh, as a little kid, I actually remember the, the moment that... Uh, that I realized I was a Texan. Now, some of you will despise this, and some of you will get this. Uh, actually, we had, uh, at a, my kids were small. This was around 1991. My wife and I moved to Missouri. And I'd, uh, we went to Missouri, and I was, gosh, 26, 27 years old at that time. And I would hear Missouri people, like, they'd meet me, and they go, oh, you're one of those Texans. Boy, Texans think they're the best. They think Texas is the best. They think Texas is the biggest. And I'm like, no, no, not really. And then we went back in the mid-2000s and lived for two years, and I was back around a bunch of Texans. I was like, eh, yeah, Texans are kind of big on themselves, come to think of it. <laughs> kind of, you know. And so one day I got to reflect, and I remember the day it dawned on me that I was a Texan. I was five years old. Uh, this would have been 1971. And, uh, or 1969, and I was out in one of these little pedal cars out on my front porch, driving around. This is weird that you would just remember this moment. And I stopped, and I mean, this is like around the time of landing on the moon and stuff. And I'm like, had this epiphany, because we we landed on the moon, so it was all this patriotic, you know, America is the best. And we, I remember watching it on TV with my family and. My dad going, this is why we're the best. And, you know, and so I'm like, at five years old, I'm thinking, wow, it's a, of, of all the places that you could end up being born, you're born an American. I mean, it's like winning the, the, the lottery, seriously. Um, and, and so I was like, as five years old, I'm like, wow, what's the chances? I, I'm, I'm an American. And then it was like, 
not only that, I'm a Texan. <laughs> because it was during all the Western shows and everything. Everything was about being a cowboy and everything. And I was like, yeah, man, I not only became an American, I'm a Texan. You know, so I was like, yes, Texan. Um, but I'm really not a Texan. You're really not a Californian or you're not a Minnesotan or whatever. Wherever you came from, really, the scripture says, no, we come from a different place. We come from a, a holy nation. We come from a heavenly citizenship. And so the, the, the deal is, is that very, we, we don't learn that really well as Christians today because we really haven't learned the full gospel. And the gospel says, we have come from the kingdom of heaven. And we are called to bring that kingdom into the places where our feet touch. That's what we're called to do. So it's a different ethos. It's a different ethic. It's a different way of living that God's called us to. I'm thankful that my physical body was born in America. I'm thankful for the rights and everything and the privileges that we have. But so often those privileges, those rights, those expectations, those things that, that pursuit of happiness or whatever it might be, so much of that stuff runs very contrary to the kingdom of heaven and to the call on our life. And that becomes very difficult to, for us as Christians. Uh, I'm going to ask you just kind of imagine a scenario uh, in your mind, just going to kind of set up what we're going to talk about this morning. So imagine, think of, uh, and this is a good area for it because every, this isn't always typical of all the places around L.A., um, but Simi Valley has a lot of suburbs, and so you may live in a, in a suburban setting. So that's what I want you to imagine, a typical American suburb. Maybe you grew up in one, maybe you live in one right now, but just imagine that scenario. Let's say or that setting, and imagine it's summer evening, sun's gone down, and there's four, let's say three or four couples that are kind of sitting in the front yard. They've grilled some burgers that evening, and they're, they're sitting around. There's a beer cooler sitting here, and they're around lawn chairs and just enjoying one another in, in the summer evening. At some point, one of the guys in the group looks down the street and sees a, like a U-Haul truck in front of a house and says, hey, has anybody met the people that moved into Brett and Stacy's old place. And, and one of the gals in the circle said, yeah, I was running the other day, and, and, and uh, I saw the wife getting something out of the car, so I took the opportunity to stop and introduce myself, welcome her to the neighborhood. And, well, did you find anything out about them? Yeah, they're here from, they moved here from Seattle. He works for a tech firm. They got two kids. And then she goes, oh, I meant to tell you. I'm glad you brought it up. I meant to tell you guys. This is it's pretty exciting, actually. They are evangelical Christians, and they got the Jesus fish on the back of their car and everything. And when she says this, man, guys jump up, beer goes flying, they're high five, and they're going, yes, the evangelicals have moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> Why are you laughing at that story? <laughs> What's funny about that? The, the thing that's funny about it is actually the thing that's sad about it is we know doggone well that if some evangelicals moving in the neighborhood, that group sitting around the beer cooler in the night, they're not jumping up and down and high-fiving when they find out the evangelicals have moved into the neighborhood. Most likely, it's going to get real quiet. There may be a few curse words pop out around that campfire or around that, that beer cooler. Say, oh, no. We know what that means. We know what they represent. We know what they're all about. Isn't it sad that the very people, us, who go by the name evangelical Christian, the irony is this, is that the word evangelical comes from the word gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion, where we get evangel. And the word gospel, what does that word mean? Does anybody know? Good. What kind of news? Good news. The irony is, for most of evangelical Christianity, when you were to go, if you were to go and do a man-on-the-street interview and ask people, when you hear the word evangelical Christian, what do you think of? They don't think good news. It's, it's ironic that we're not known as good news. We're, usually, we're not so much known for what we're for, we're known more for what we're against. And Jesus was just the opposite. Now, he drove the religious crowd crazy, and they killed him for it. Because Jesus was so out there with, for, among 
the very people that the church folk shunned, it, it got Jesus killed. But it established the church. And Jesus is still on that agenda today. He is still calling us and sending us out into the places that we live, work, and play. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible today. Now, old school, we'd say turn in your Bible. Now, we'll say just turn on your iPhone. So, whatever it takes. Go to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to read a text here that most of us are really familiar with. Most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus' most famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. Jesus says... You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on the hill. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus gives two scenarios here. He gives kind of two metaphors. The first metaphor is salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. I love the way that the, that the message translation says it. Eugene Peterson said, you're called to bring out the God flavors into this world. And then Jesus says, but if the salt loses its flavor, it's, it's good for nothing but just to be thrown out and trampled under feet. Now, my wife is one of these, um, she's an organic person, so she's one of those. So she should fit well with the stereotypical California, it seems, right? So, I mean, she's gluten-free, she's, you know, uh, actually she has celiac disease, so she has to be, but um, uh, she's an incredible gardener. I mean, she could take a broomstick and plant it, and a week later, you like, pluck fruit from it. She's just a green thumb, amazing woman. And, but she's like this, this researcher maven, too. So I was actually working on, on a book one day, and, and I was working on this text. And I just kind of had a thought, I think I know the answer, but I'm getting, this is going to go in print, so I better have my facts together. So I ran downstairs. I said, hey, crazy question. I said, does salt expire? And she looked at me like I asked her if the tooth fairy was real. You know, like, no, it doesn't expire. And so... I turned to try to get back up the stairs, but I knew, no, I'm getting ready to get a lecture. You know, and she's like, come here. And I'm like, no, I just, that's all, no, no, come here. So she takes me to the kitchen. She opens up the pantry, and there's like 30 different types of salt, stuff I didn't even know. Guys don't look in the pantry. I didn't know it was in there. You know, she starts telling me Baltic sea salt, red salt, this salt, that kind of salt. Here's what this salt does. Here's where this came from. You know, I'm like, I just ask a simple question, you know, it's simple. So anyway, so the after 15-minute lecture, the bottom line was still, it does not expire. And so I said, so, you know, really, so Jesus is really talking about a scenario that really doesn't even happen. He's basically saying it would be crazy for salt to lose its flavor. And if it, you guys wouldn't know anything about this, but what Jesus is saying is, hey, if it does lose its flavor, salt the roads with it. Get rid of the ice. <laughs> that's all you can use it for. And that's what we do, we do with salt in the Midwest. You know, we use it for roads as well as beef. So, but Jesus says, the crazy thing is that if it loses its flavor, people are just going to walk over it. And then he says, okay, if that metaphor doesn't work for you, he says, you are to be a light that is on a lampstand, not to be hidden under a basket. Put your light out there for everybody to see it. I was watching uh, uh, a TV show here a while back, uh, one of these car shows where, where they restore cars and different things like that. And there's this one guy who has a show where um, he buys cars, restores them, and either sells them at auction or just sells them at his shop. And so this lady had called him up and asked him to come look at this, this car, and he, he goes out to her place, and, uh, and he... And, and, uh, he meets the lady, and she takes him out. Uh, next to her house, there was this one small building, which ended up being a garage. Everything looked perfect. It was prim and proper. And she opened the garage door up, and sitting in this car, in, inside this garage was a 1969 uh, Chevy Impala that looked like it had just rolled off the showroom floor. Perfect, per pristine. He said, what's the story? And she said, well, my husband died about nine months ago. We bought this, this is a 1969 car. We bought this car in 1982. 
And he had this garage built for it uh, before it even arrived, just for this car. And, um, she, and he said, so I guess you guys over the years have taken it to car shows and stuff and all. And he said, she said, mm-mm. She said, it's never moved since the day we rolled it into this garage. And he said, you, you mean like it's never moved? She said, it's, it's never left the spot that where it's sitting right now since 1982. And he's going around, he's looking at the car. There's still the knobbies on the wheels and, you know, and, the, and there's only like less than a thousand miles on this car. And he says, y'all never like even went out for a Sunday drive or anything? She said, I begged him to let us go out for a ride in it. And he was always afraid it would get dirty, it would get scratched. And then she goes, oh, she said, now there were times in the fall and in the spring, we would come out here and we'd open the garage up and we'd get and we'd sit in the car. <laughs> and he's just like, what a shame. And he told her, he said, well, if we make a deal for this car, I'm going to go, I'm going to take it and tune it up, change all the fluids, I'm going to bring it back and we're going for a ride in it. And she goes, I would love that. And in fact, at the end of the show, they did. And I watched that, and I thought, man, how sad. I said, that, that's so much like what the church world has become, what, what we've become. It's, it's, that, that it's what Jesus is saying here. The, the, the light that is supposed to go out in the world has been covered up under the box of church. And this has just become our garage. And so we thought that the prime activity of the church is in here. And guess what? This is where you get tuned up. This is where the fluids get changed. This is where you get recharged. You get refilled. You, and, and, but the life is out there. The life that we're called to is the open road, the risk, the adventure of living the Jesus stuff out there where you live, where you work, where you play, where God has actually already sent you. Amen? That's what God intends for our lives is that we be the people that he sends out into the world. The irony is that about 50 years ago, the uh, scholars and, and, and church leaders started realizing that, that they were alarmed as they started doing some research that the church in America was starting to show a little, a slight decline. Um, now still, this is back in the 50s and the early 60s, and still church dominated culture quite a bit. Christianity dominated culture in America. But they're starting to see a hint of a, of a stagnation. Part of it was the automobile culture. Part of it was people are starting to move away from hometowns and different places. And they're, they're starting to leave some of the traditional moorings. Um, but then there was a societal and a cultural change that was starting to come in too. And so they started saying, well, we probably better keep an eye on this and maybe start making a few adjustments and a change to the way that we ap approach church and this was happening across denominational lines and and just tons and tons of major leaders were noticing this to the point of the early 70s they were like we got a problem we're seeing we're seeing trending decline in the growth of the church now let me pause that and tell you right now today the evangelical church in america is losing 50,000 people a month okay i mean we're not even keeping up with population growth and when you start looking at, at research, and I've looked at a ton of it lately, if you look at research and statistics among young people, I'm talking about 30-somethings and younger, and you look at their interest in Christianity and religion and such, there's massive decline. So, you know, Wayne Gretzky was called the great one because not because he was the fastest and the biggest and the best athlete on the ice. They asked him, what's the key to your game? Why have you probably become the greatest ever to play? He said, I don't go to where the puck is. I go to where the puck's going to be. He just had this innate way of watching that. And that's the thing is, us as the church, we better take a look at where the puck's headed right now. And if you go to Europe and look at the church in Europe, you can, you can see where we're headed. Because we're at a place, statistically, in a lot of the research where they were 50 years ago. And right now, it's really hard to even find the church in Europe. In lots of places where 60, 70 years ago, it was 70, 80% of Christian. Now it's 3, 4% Christian. And this is scary stuff, folks. It's real scary. It's not just, oh, hey, things, you know, culture's gotten secular and blah, 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 blah. No, we better wake up because for a lot of people, they're looking at the salt and saying it's good for nothing but to be trampled under feet. There's all kinds of books that have come out and research come out in the last 10, 5, 4 years, um, book 
that stands out that most pastors have read in the last five years is a book called Unchristian based off some Barna research that the American public that were not Christians looked at the Christians and basically all these questions about uh, about Christianity and where it stands in, in secular culture, they end up naming this book Unchristian. And well, why did you name it Unchristian? Well, they named it Unchristian because they said that non-Christians say most Christians are unchristlike, And so, folks, we got a problem. I mean, we, we, we've got to wake up. Now, what we would like to do is we would like to kind of soothe our conscience and say, well, that's just the darkness hating the light. And there is some of that. There's, there's certain legitimate persecution that goes on. And, and, and it's ramping up. I mean, severely. We're seeing martyrdom, and we're seeing stuff like is a, we've never seen in our lifetime. Um, so there, there's definitely persecution happening. But on the other front, there's a lot of stuff that we kind of bring on ourselves. Um, because in lots of ways, we don't approach non-Christians the way that Jesus approached the non-religious. And I want to just unpack a little bit of that this morning. I'm going to ask you to look at Jeremiah 29. So turn over to Jeremiah 29. Let me tell you the situation Jeremiah, here in Jeremiah 29. So the, the, uh, the Jews have found themselves in a place called uh, a place of exile. They are in what's called the Babylonian captivity. Now, most of you, if you've been around church very long, when you hear the word Babel or, or uh, Babylon, you know that that's a metaphor for the God-forsaken world. And, I mean, I, I grew, I, I'm a child of the 70s, so, I mean, I grew up hearing about... Uh, uh, the apocalypse and Babylon and you know the Red Scare and I mean that was the Cold War and all this stuff and so I remember back in the day before PowerPoint and all that and they would, these guys would come in the summer and they would like do these these like these guys that were experts on the Book of Revelation and they would have all these charts up that looked like they came out of a circus or something you may remember any of this stuff you old enough to remember some of this stuff and they would just like scare the heck out of you for a week and just you know like you know, it's going to be hell on earth and all this stuff's going to happen. But, and, and it's all because of secular society is coming upon us and we've got to retract. We've got to pull out of the world and we've got to bunker down and, you know, build shelters and put rapture food down in your basement and stuff and get ready for this apocalyptic deal. Well, that's because of Babylon pushing in. And a lot of even prophetic guys were saying America is Babylon and they sold a lot of books. So, <laughs> Jeremiah 29, uh, this is the situation. The, the children of Israel found their self, uh, they're not on home field advantage anymore, okay? So, their ways of thinking, their ways of living, their attendance to, their, and, and their devotion to God, uh, to Jehovah, is uh, not accepted to say the least, by the culture around them. And they are the suppressed ones now. They're the ones pushed into exile. And Jeremiah 29, 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he says, look, okay, now you are in, an, in a place of exile. You don't have home field advantage anymore. So let me, let's just pause this right here. This is pretty much the situation that Christianity is finding itself in America right now. Um, when, when I grew up, especially in the South, Christianity dominated. Every year, at, uh, and I don't know if you guys had it around here, but every year at some point during the school year, the Gideons, who you know are the ones that put the Bibles in the hotel, they were allowed to come into the schools and give Bibles away at least one day a week to the whole school system. And now that's just a bizarre, some of, some of you are young enough to go, I mean, that's just like a bizarre thought that that could even be allowed, even legal. But yes, every year. Did anybody have ever grow up with any of that? That's the way they did it in the South. And so through the whole school system all over Dallas-Fort Worth, I mean, you would get a Bible. And they were able to come in and give these Bibles away. And this was the domination of Christendom. Um, 
uh, Wednesdays. When I was growing up, Wednesdays, schools didn't have any after-school activities on Wednesdays. There were no sporting events on Wednesdays, no baseball, soccer practice, none of that kind of stuff. Why? Because good Texan Baptist folk were going to church on Wednesday. And so it dominated. Um, Sunday, are you kidding? You did not drive by a soccer field and see kids out having organized games on a Sunday. No way. In fact, we had what was called blue laws. Some of you think I'm making, I'm just doing like, you know, tripping you out here. This is, this is true stuff. We had blue laws. And what blue laws were, was it was Sunday laws that you couldn't sell certain things on Sundays. So about the only stores, gosh, this was up to the mid-80s in Texas. About the only stores that were open on Sunday was like a 7-Eleven. So the Baptist deacons could go buy their cigarettes and stuff after church. But, I mean, that was just about it. You didn't go to the mall. The movies were not open, things like that. It, church dominated. Christianity dominated. So now what's happened is you especially, you'll see these stories every year during the fall, especially there'll be a, a, a story or two will pop up somewhere in Georgia or Alabama, Florida, Texas, of a fight um, or a lawsuit around a Friday night high school football game as Christians are fighting to be able to pray over the loud speaker system before the football game. And... Uh, there's a fight every year about it. There's a lawsuit that pops up, maybe four or five or six of them that always pop up because there are still Christians saying, we should have the right to do this. Now, I grew up as a Christian. Would that be nice? Yeah, that would be nice, but here's the deal. We've been exiled to Babylon. We are in a, we're not on home-field advantage anymore. America is not a Christian nation. It's just not. I mean, we can put it on our money, and we can put it on everything else, and we can call it, you know, what we want to think it is. But the fact is, is either you're living it or you ain't living it. And the fact is, is we ain't living it. Is that true? Is that a fair statement? I mean, do we forgive our enemies? Do we bless those who curse us? So in what way are we a Christian nation? We're not. Is the ideology still thick? And is there a lot of Christians in America? Yes, but the deal is we've got to start playing it different. I, how, how much, listen, here's the deal. You keep giving gift cards away and you keep blessing your schools like the story that John just told. Guess what? You're going to keep getting letters and you're going to keep getting more invites back like that. They're not going to be going, we want you out. They're going to be saying, we want you in. And I hear stories like that all over America when churches go, you know what? Why should we be fighting for like, this stuff and that stuff and trying to make a show of this. Why don't we just go, just love the hell out of our public schools. What if we tried that? Instead of trying to make a big show, you know, oh, well, they won't let us do, meet me at the flagpole for prayer. Well, Jesus said, go do your prayer in the closet anyway. Quit trying to make a big public show out of it. Didn't Jesus say that? You know, what if we tried Jesus' way? You know, one time I just heard the Lord say to me, Hey, you've seen about 15 years in your ministry. How'd you like to see mine? I'm like, yeah, let's try that. <laughs> right? So, so Jesus says this. Matthew 29, or I mean, uh, Jeremiah 29. After he says, I've sent you from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then verse 5, he says, what do you think he would tell them to do? He says, do this. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is pretty amazing because Jesus says, or or the Lord says, I've sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now what are you going to do? What should you do? Here's what I want you to do. Now, most of us, I've been, I've been in vocational ministry for 30 years, John. And you, you've seen enough of it, too. You've been around. This ain't your first rodeo. Most, if us preachers, if it, if, if it dawned on us, okay, you've been gone from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. Most of us say, okay, we got to do an evangelistic campaign. Okay, well, we got to start more church services. Well, we got to do this. Well, we got to do that. We got to do this. And what does God say? Build houses, plant gardens, 
get married, have sons, have daughters, have a good life. Are you kidding, God? Are you serious? Don't you realize? Don't you, aren't you reading the statistics? Aren't you seeing the news, Lord? You know, this, the, the world's going to hell. And God says, have a life. Have a great life. Make a life. Dig deep into your neighborhoods. Dig deep into your communities and make a life. But while you're doing that, seek the welfare of the city. Seek its welfare. Now, this is where the turn comes. Because now, all of a sudden, he's saying, don't just be a consumer of the goods and services of the place that I've sent you. Don't just try to get the American dream with Jesus sprinkled on top of it. No. Come in and seek the welfare of the place that I sent you. I'm going into your schools. This way is seeking the welfare of the schools and then letting the life of God bubble up from it and come out from the inside and come up just like a mustard seed, just like Jesus said. Now, the irony of the whole church growth metrics and movement that happened that I was talking about was that the answer that most of the leaders came up with was what was called the church growth movement. So they said, we've got to start doing church better. We, we've, we've got to make church more appealing. And so there started being a change in the 80s and the 90s. In fact, you started seeing the styles of churches change. So, um, the, and this would be a perfect example of it. And I'm not even saying anything's wrong. This particular issue is wrong. But you started seeing churches change the way they look. 60 years ago, you walk, if you drove into a city... You knew what a church looked like, right? You, there's a church. There's a church. There's a church. This is an industrial complex. I passed one or two churches coming in here. You know, seriously, it would be a time warp if you went back 50 years ago and they go, uh, yeah, uh, hey, Lance, you're speaking at New Hope. And I would have been driving in here going, there is not a church here. There's not, this is not a church. Where's the steeple? You know, where's all the people? You know, so... You know, it's, I mean, so it, so, but what happened was, was church growth experts started saying, okay, people are turned off by symbols, they're turned off by signs and all that. Now, what we need to do is we need to give excellent service to them. We need to have great children's ministry. We got to have great youth ministry. We got to have great music. We got to have great graphics. We got, and, and now, you know, now you can't even do a church without good coffee. You know, it's like, oh, you better have a good, you know, you got to be doing all that, too. So it's like, we got to have cool church. Is that good? Would you, I would rather have cool church than drill church. Yeah, well, yeah, I'd rather have good music than the music I grew up with in the church. You know, with Betty May over thinking on a untuned piano, you know, absolutely, right? So, Absolutely. But you can't just rely upon that because here was the irony. This mo that movement was labeled by leaders as the seeker movement. So the kind of some of the ones that led it, Saddleback, Willow Creek, a lot of the big churches. And it was all called the seeker movement. So the idea was if we build it, they will come. If we get rid of the churchies and the Christianese language and we try to make people feel as comfortable as we can when they come... Then, then, then they will come. Well, guess what? They didn't. The American church is not growing. We got more mega churches than we ever have, but the medium-sized church is disappearing. You're getting small churches or large churches, but it's a zero-sum game. 20 years ago, you had about 1,200 churches of 2,000 or more. Now we've got over 5,000. But the church, the evangelical population is smaller because guess what we're doing? People are just shifting. They're just moving. They're just going from... So if a cool church pops up in a city, you'll get a, you, you'll get a lot of the... If they do it well, well, you get a lot of the formerly ticked-off Christians to come to that church. So this is just... I study this stuff. I'm telling you, this is what happens. And so there's got to be a change. There's got to be a way that we that we do church different. But it's not about doing Sundays different. It's about us being the church different. Okay? Because, guess what? You know, theologically, this ain't church. 9 a.m. And, and 11 a.m. ain't church. That's when the church gathers. Okay? This is not church. This is the building for the church. Amen? 
We are the church. You know, people go, oh, let's have church. What do you mean, have church? That's a, that's, that doesn't even make sense. You know, that's like saying, hey, let's have Ford. What? That's creepy. You don't want, no, I am Lance Ford. You don't, we are the church. You don't have church. Church is not an event. It's not a location. It's not a place. But it's become that. So what people do is they come and they drive in the garage. Let's do the church thing, and then they go out and say, now let's go do the American thing. And let's just, you know, hope Jesus blesses it as, we, as we're on the way. Well, guess what? The world has said, no, that's, that's not working for me. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Love this verse. Love the way that John, the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, this young man that was very close to Jesus, he puts it in a beautiful way as he, as he opens up his recounting of the gospel and the story of Jesus and Jesus' walk with the disciples. John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, full of grace and truth. Now, I love this. And I love the way Eugene Peterson says it in the, in the message translation. He says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What was, what was the deal? This is what we call the incarnation. And the deal about the incarnation was, was that for the first time in history of the universe, of mankind, God takes himself and he takes flesh and blood and he crawls inside it and he moves among humanity and becomes one with them. Now, we become so used to it that it doesn't really grab us, but it's got to continually grab us. What was the word? What does it mean when we say the word was made flesh and blood? What's, what's, what's someone's word? Someone's word is their opinion. It's their ideology. It's their statement. It's their covenant. I mean, it used to be when, when a man gave you his word, you could count on it, Right? So when we say, when, when, when the Lord says the word was made flesh, the word what? The word, God's opinion about everything became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to think back to that scenario of that group sitting on the lawn chairs in the suburbs. What would it look like if an evangelical family full of the word and their flesh and blood has actually become the word. What would happen if they moved into the neighborhood? And the people around it, just as this verse says, they beheld the glory of God because these people moved into the neighborhood. What does it look like when a family, an individual, a single person that is full of the word and the word has transformed their flesh and blood into it? When they dig deep and move into a neighborhood and start living out the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, what, what, what can that look like and what kind of effect can that have? Because this is the essence. It started with Jesus, but Jesus was called the firstborn of many brethren. So Jesus says, what I did, in fact, in John 17, when he's praying his prayer in Gethsemane, he says, Father, as you, as you have sent me, so send I them. He sends us in the same way that the Father sent him. He sends us into our neighborhoods. He sends us into our workplaces. He sends us into the places where we live, work, and play. Here's what happened in my neighborhood about five years ago. My wife and I, um, we had had our kids. Uh, our, uh, well, we got married. She was 19. I was 21 when we got married. Two years later, our first son was born, and then like twice after that, 13 months, our daughter was born, and then 13 months later, our next daughter was born. So, they were like, bam, bam, bam. Well, so what happened was then fast forward 20 years or something, and all of a sudden, in a four-month period, my wife and I became empty nesters. Yeah, it was just the scenario. Son went to Australia with YWAM. Middle daughter graduated college, moved into Saint, the heart of St. Louis. Youngest daughter got married and become a nurse. And uh, so my wife, seven years before that, we had built a house and, we'd, and, and a small hobby farm. We had like 15 acres, horses, ducks, chickens, goats, and big mistake, goats, and, um, and this gigantic garden. 
about half the size of this room. And, uh, but, you know, it's like all of a sudden we wake up one morning and the kids are gone, you know. And it's like American Gothic, you know. My wife and I are standing out, you know. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to do this, you know. And uh, so my buddy Brad that spoke here a few weeks ago, uh, he lived in Kansas City. He and I started riding together and doing a lot of stuff together. And we said, let's do something crazy. Let's just, because my work is everywhere, so let's move from St. Louis all the way across the state to Kansas City. Let's, and not only that, we moved into the heart of the city, into this old historic neighborhood. And uh, so huge context change. We move in, and the house next door to us had been, had been vacant. And uh, uh, also, we looked at both houses. We bought this house. Six weeks later, a young couple moved in. And the crazy thing was was that he was a young pastor and worship leader of a really neat church in the city. A lot of his friends across the, the states and the world were same friends. In fact, he, he and a group of his guys were reading one of my books, and, and, he, and I went over and introduced myself to him. We didn't know each other at all, and within five minutes, we're standing there crying because we're like, wow, God sent you to this neighborhood. God sent you to this. We're not alone. He sent us to this neighborhood. Because we had really prayed over We didn't want to just move somewhere. We wanted to be called to where we were moving. Sherry and I did. Well, across the street from John and Alyssa were a young couple named Matt and Hillary. Now, Hillary, she's got this flaming red hair and a personality that matches it. She is, uh, how, do I, how do I explain Hillary? I'll just be honest. So Hillary, and I'll tell you how she introduced herself to us. She's, um, she went Three or four minutes into meeting her, she let me know she was a she's a pro-choice, pro-women's rights, liberal Democrat, and I hate effing evangelical Christians. Pleased to meet you, you know. And she didn't say effing either; she filled in the blanks. And uh, and uh, so I found out later why she was so bold as to say this because a few months later she ends up telling me a story I'm going to tell you here in a minute. I found out why she emphasized the evangelical deal. Well, her husband, Matt, grew up in the church, grew up in the Baptist church. He even told us at one point, he said, I had Petra tapes. So some of you are not old enough to even know what a tape is, much less what Petra was. But uh, so uh, it was one of the first Christian rock and roll bands. It was really bad. So, um, so uh, but he left the church at 18, moved out of the house, wanted nothing to do with God, and he called, and he called himself a, an atheist. He told us, he said, well, I'm, I'm a, I've become an atheist. Well, um, we actually became, became friends with Matt and Hillary, and uh, although it didn't start off very good with that introduction, but we actually, John and Lisa and Cherry and I actually really became friends with Matt and Hillary, and after uh, a few months, she starts telling us the story. One night, we're all having dinner, and she says, hey, let me tell you guys something. She says, Lance, he said, when you and Sherry moved in, See, across the street from us is this couple named, uh, a couple named Doug and Troy. Doug and Troy have been together for 25 years, lived in a house across the street from us for about 12 years. Hillary grew up in the house that she lived in, so she's known Doug and Troy for a long time. Her and Matt bought the house from her mom. She said, Lance, when you guys moved in, now Doug is known, Doug is known as the Gladys Kravitz of our neighborhood. He's like the nosiest, uh, he's got binoculars that he uses and everything. I'm not kidding. I mean, he, he knows stuff before it's going to happen. And he's just, man. So she said, Lance, when you and Sherry moved in, Doug went down to the downtown Kansas City and, found, and went to the courthouse to find out who bought the house so he could research you. I'm like, he's a stalker, man. I mean, he's crazy. She said, so he gets back, he gets on, he starts Googling your name, and he's like, oh, no, this guy's like an evangelical writer, pastor. And he calls Troy, and he goes, this isn't, this isn't good. You know, I don't think we're going to like the new neighbors. And uh, he goes, and he tells Hillary, and Hillary's like, you know, I can't tell you what she said. But um, so then six weeks later, John and Alyssa move in. Doug goes down to the courthouse in Kansas City. Comes back, does the research, and he's like, calls Troy, and he goes, oh, crap, there's two of them. You know, they're, they're, they're next door. They've moved in. They're going to, like, take over the neighborhood. He runs over and tells Hillary, you know, hey, guess what? The other new neighbors, they're, here's who they are. And she's like, uh-uh. And she's, she tells Matt, we're moving. 
Now, they loved the neighborhood. They were going to live there. That was their plans. In two weeks, the house is on the market. They had not planned on moving until we all moved into the neighborhood. Puts the house up on the market. But this was in January, and it's cold, bad winter. In fact, that was an extremely bad winter. And uh, so houses don't sell very well. So it's going to be the spring before people start buying houses, most likely. So their house sits the whole time. Well, in this time, we're starting to develop a relationship with them. We have them over for dinner and for desserts, and we're all hanging out. We're becoming friends. And uh, which, let me put a pause on that. She ends up telling us this whole story about what was going on in their mind with us. And she said, it got to a point, she said, we couldn't believe the way y'all treated us. Now, what do you mean? She said, y'all didn't treat us. And here's what she said. She said, you didn't treat us like an evangelistic project. She said, you just treated us normal. We kept waiting for some night that you guys were going to like, you know, drop the hook. You know, like pull out the illustration or the Evangicube or, you know, something. And like here, okay, you know. There's a gulf, and you're on this side, you know, and you've got to get over here. You know, if you died tonight, you know what, you know. She knew all this stuff because it had all been tried on her before. She said, you didn't do it. You guys just, we kept waiting for the shoe to drop, and it never dropped. Y'all just treated us normal. And so what happened was about, uh, it came the spring, and I got word that they received two cash offers on the house. All of a sudden, things broke. And a week after I heard that, I walked out. I was putting my recycling stuff out. John was walking out, and I noticed that the for sale sign was gone. And I said, man, I said, I really hate Matt and Hillary leaving. I said, we've really come to love them and want to see what's going to happen in their lives. And John comes running over. He goes, no, no. He goes, they were over last night. He goes, they're not leaving. They're not. He said, they, they, they pulled the house off the market. I said, really? Why? He goes, he looks around. He goes, get this. He goes, they were over here last night, and they told us the reason they did it was they did not want to leave us. I said, are you si-? They didn't want to leave the, evan- the freaking evangelicals? <laughs> I said freaking, too. They didn't want to, they didn't want, he goes, no, we were standing there laughing. He goes, they said they didn't want to leave us. So like two weeks later, I go, I gotta, I'm writing a book right now. I got to find out more about this, man. So we have dinner. I said, hey, can I interview you guys? I got some questions for you. Sure. In fact, they let me write their whole story up in a new book that came out last fall. They didn't even want me to change their names. It's amazing. So I said, is this really true? John told me. And they said, yeah. And, I, and she said, you know, we just thought y'all were going to be like all the others. But you guys have had us into your home over and over and over. You've loved on our kids. And I said, Matt, I said, you call your, yeah, you grew up in the church and you call yourself an atheist. I said, I don't believe it. I said, but. I'll give it to you right now. I said, if Jesus was who he said he was, if Jesus moved in, our neighborhood's called Brookside. If Jesus moved into Brookside, what do you think it would look like? And he said, he didn't even think. He said, well, I think we've already seen it. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, it would look like you guys. And, um, you know, John and I talked about that. Like, we haven't done anything. I haven't offered to keep their kids. I'm not going to. Um, we haven't... <laughs> We, I mean, we haven't done anything spectacular. I mean, but I mean, the things that we have that John and I have done is we've bought um, lawnmowers, snowblowers, um, weed whackers. Uh, we we went in and bought. We we thought, hey, it's foolish for each one of us to own a lawnmower for our little postage stamp yard. Why don't we? And 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 there's some single moms, and particularly there's some elderly people live in our neighborhood. And we said, let's take care of the yard. Let's take care of the snow blowing. Because here's the deal. I don't believe that if the kingdom comes on earth, it is in heaven. I don't believe that 75-year-old Jess across the street, whose wife has just had to be put uh, in assisted living because of Alzheimer's, I don't believe Jess is going to have to be out shoveling snow in heaven. So we're going to bring the kingdom of heaven on his earth. That's what we're called to do. We're going to seek the welfare of our city. Uh, we think when, uh, when, when, when Matt's working late and Hillary can't even get out of her driveway because of snow, you, John and I, we've got a snowblower. We're going to take care of their yard. We're going to take care of their driveway. We're going to take care of the 
we're going to take care of Sharon, the 65-year-old single lady over here. We're, we're, she shouldn't be out there raking her leaves in the fall. She's not going to be doing that in heaven. We can do something about it. We're going to bring heaven on earth. And so that's the way we dug into the neighborhood. Lots of cool stories have been happening. It's just been amazing over the last three, three and a half years, or four years now. But it's all just been simple stuff. It's not complicated. It's just seeking the welfare of those that we live among. We made a decision. John, Cherry, and I, Alyssa, we decided, okay, yeah, when we buy new tires, I could drive 15 minutes and go to Walmart and get them for 30% cheaper. Or I can go over to Fred's, two streets over, who's lived in the neighbor, who's had his shop here for 30 years, and his boys work with him. It's a family business, and I'm going to pay probably 20, 30 percent more, and it's going to take a little longer. But I'm going to seek the welfare of my neighborhood. I'm going to seek the welfare of the city, where God has sent me. Say the same thing about barber shops, about all kinds of stuff that we just dug in and said. This is what it means to move in, go in, go deep, and seek the welfare of your city and bring heaven upon earth. And you say, well, you know, man, that doesn't... Uh, yeah, but when do, you drop the, when do you drop the hook? Well, I could tell you some good stories about that stuff, too. I don't want to tell you those stories because we have a tendency to focus on that. The kingdom of heaven bubbles up. Jesus spent three and a half years with 12 guys pouring himself into them, and they weren't even converted until after the cross. Three years with Jesus every day. And it was after the cross that they got converted. He was discipling them all, all along the way. People always ask me after I tell the Hillary story, well, what's going on with Hillary right now? Did you baptize her this summer? You know, whatever. I will give you this. Two months ago, Hillary asked Alyssa if she could join her Bible study. Now, that's pretty far along, okay? So... And we're just walking it along with them. We're just loving on them, and they are our friends, and we dearly love them. I was on a radio show, national syndicated radio show, uh, back in the fall, and I was talking about some of this kind of stuff, and the, the, the interviewer was kind of pushing back on proximity with the, with, with the lost and such. And Because I, and, and I, I had mentioned, I said, well, Jesus was the friend of sinners. Scripture says he was the friend of sinners. And he said, yeah, but what does that word friend mean? And I said, well, I'm glad you asked. Because I got a little seminary training, got a little Greek training. I said, you, want, you know what the word friend means in the Greek? He goes, yeah, he goes, share, that, share that with our audience. What's the word friend in the Greek mean? I said, friend. That's <laughs> what it means. It means friend. And we always want to qualify. Well, that's exactly what the Pharisees wanted to do to Jesus. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees, first thing they asked was, yeah, but who's my neighbor? If you go back and you unpack the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus, the whole bottom line of the story of the Good Samaritan, wasn't, is that my neighbor or not? Jesus said, who is the neighbor? See, the Good Samaritan became the neighbor. It wasn't, do, do they qualify for my love? Do they qualify for my forgiveness? It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for the godly, ungodly. We were the enemies of God when he accepted us and loved us and brought us in. Right? So when, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's actually, first of all, he's talking about us. So that's why Christianity, the gospel, should be good news. But it's amazing how we twist it. It's amazing, and I know I'm going a little long here. I'm here for a week, though, folks. I mean, I got all the time in the world. So um, here's, here's the deal. It's amazing to me, and I'll wrap it with this, how we make the issue always other people's sin, and Jesus never led a relationship with that. He never led in a relationship with that. He was never upset with people who were sinners. He was only upset with people who thought they were sinners. And it was usually the religious people who thought that they were not sinners. That's the people that Jesus was turning the tables over for. But we just had this, it's just amazing how we've, how we've twisted the gospel. The word repent. I remember growing up again in the 70s, and these revivalists would come in and they would preach for a whole week. This is, this is way before Left Behind series, okay? I mean, we, but we had it back then. We, there was a movie called The Thief in the Night, and they would show this thing, and it would scare you 
bad, man. I mean, and, you know, so it really was. And I'm just trying to be cute here. It really was that the deal was you want to scare the hell out of people, you know, rather than love it out of them, you know. While the scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so we've taken this word repent. I mean, I grew up, and when I would hear the word repent, I'd just see fire font in my mind, just like, repent, you know. And you never heard repent without about three exclamation points behind it. But if you go back, and I challenge you to do this, go back in the Gospels and read how Jesus used the word repent. When Jesus said repent, he said repent. I think he said it with a smile. He said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does it mean when something's at hand? It means you can reach it. The word repent literally means to turn around. And Jesus said, you're going the wrong, everything you're looking for, you're going the wrong direction. Turn around and go into the kingdom of heaven. It's good news. So Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Now, some way we've turned repentance into just all about the bad news. All about hell. When Jesus said, no, it's really all about heaven. It's about coming into heaven right now. Coming into the ethos and the ethics and the ways and the means of God's economy, of God's way of doing things. Why, why is the gospel good news to the poor? Jesus says good news to the poor. Why? Because it creates a good news people that come in and swallow the, the needs of those around them. So gospel people come in and say, we're not going to allow you to be poor. Gospel people come in and say, we're not going to allow a, 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 a young man to have one pair of jeans to go to school all weekend. We're not going to allow children not to eat on the weekends. We're not going to uh, just, just let this fostering thing go and we're going to turn our heads away from it when the church could actually create the solution statistically in America. That's why we are the good news people. We bring good news in, but we've turned the good news into such, such bad news. And Jesus says that if we, it's through our good works that we glorify God. That was that first verse, Matthew five thirteen, that I opened up with. He said the salt needs to regain its flavor. And he said, then what happens is the world will see you, and by your good works, they will glorify God. Now, we talk about glorifying God all the time. We sing songs that have the word, Oh, God, I come to glorify you. What does that mean? Oh, I just want to give you glory. But it, it's just so abstract. Well, what does it mean to give, give glory? What is it, what's, your, what's your name? Erica, okay, she's scared to death right now, <laughs> holding on to her mom. Okay, so nothing's going to happen. So Erica, so here's what we do with glorify. Well, oh, God, I just come to glorify you. Oh, God, I want to give you glory. Oh, I just come to glorify your name. What does that mean? Where's the substance of it? So if I was to come to Erica and say, Erica, I just want to give you tacos. <laughs> I just come to bring you tacos. And Erica, I want you to have tacos. And I've just come to talkify your name, Erica. I just... At some point, Erica's going to go, dude, you either bring me some tacos or go shut up, right? Come start doing it. Well, what does it mean to glorify God? The word glory or glorify in the Greek, and I'm not making this up, literally means to make his name renowned and to cause people who are watching to praise and extol him. So Jesus says, look, here's how you glorify God. It's not just about the songs that we sing. It's about the life we live. And what happens is when we start with our good works, treating people with the goods of the kingdom, guess what? They turn and they glorify God. That letter from the school principal, you know what he's doing? He's glorifying God because of your good works. He has sent us and called us in the world to bring glory to his name by the things he's equipped us to do in the places that we're, we're called to, to live and work and play. Father God, um, I, I just pray, Lord, that you will take us out of the garage. <laughs> we need the garage. We need all that it brings to our lives, and it's essential and vital, and we know that, Lord. But let us not live in the garage. Let us not be afraid to go out into the places that you've sent us to and called us to, to live this life, this, this just adventurous life of walking with you. 
and, and bringing glory to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Would you say thank you to Lance? I know, I know we're kind of at the, the, the end of what we normally, we're normally, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add on like about three more minutes, okay? Can, can you hang on for three minutes? Okay. Um, we did a little Q&A first service. I wanted to kind of do it this, this service, but I want to set you up for you to tell a story that you mentioned first service that I think really makes what you're talking about tangible. Obviously, your journey, your story does, obviously, in the way that you've lived that out. But I know for, for many of us, uh, you know, obviously living in Simi Valley, the typical experience is we drive home from work, we drive in our driveway, open the garage, go in, close the garage, and that's it. We never find the rhythm outside of our own home to try to connect with people. And then many times we wonder, well, what in the world could I even do that would make a difference mm-hmm. in my neighborhood? And uh, if you would, could you share about Vivian? About, yeah, about, so I'll yeah. condense this one Yeah, quick, because so. th- this is a perfect illustration about yeah. God can use anyone if our eyes are open yeah. to what he's doing. I'll Spe- I'll put this on, you know, like when you watch an, uh, you read an audible book, you can put it on three speed, so I'll speed this up. So anyway, this actually a guy had told, had, 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 I was with some buddies, and he had come in and, and, and told us this story that had just had happened. He had just spoken uh, at this church outside of Atlanta uh, a couple of days before that, and the, and the year before that, he had spoken at the same church. And so this past Sunday when he had gone, he said, this little old lady comes up to him and says, hey, do you remember me from a year ago when you preached here? He says, you know, I'm not sure. She, and he says, she recounts to him and reminds him. She says, remember, I came up crying after you preached last year. Because he was talking about some of the same kind of stuff. And he, and he tells her, he says, yeah, man, this lady came up crying to me. And she just said that she'd been a Christian her whole life. But she had always just lived it kind of in a Christian bubble and been very devoted. But she had never lived it out there. She, you know, didn't think, well, I'm not called to ministry. And then she said, just the stories just tore her up because she felt like she had wasted her Christian life and not been in the game. And she said, and she's told me, she said, I'm 78 now, my life's over, and I've wasted it, and I feel terrible about it. And he says, No, you're not. You're not. You're 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 breathing. You're alive. So she he he asked her to tell him the context she lived in. She ended up she lives she lived in an apartment building on a fixed very tight fixed income. She'd been there for about 12 years. And uh, so he asked her to go home and pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just kind of like what I was talking about, about Jess and Sharon and the others. We, don't, we want heaven to come up on their earth. And so she said, yeah, I'll pray that. So she goes home. She prays that the first night. And she, after the prayer, she's watching TV, and this kind of rogue thought comes to her mind. And she, she thinks about these teenagers that live in her apartment building. She doesn't even know their names. But they always meet right under her window at the bus stop for the school bus about 7 o'clock every morning. And she's thinking about them. See, this picture goes to their mind, and then she remembers that a lot of, that some of the people have said, yeah, a lot of the kids don't eat there. They, they, in the weekends, they don't eat. And their, their moms are single, and they're, some of them are druggies, and da-da-da. And, and so there's a lot of need. And she says, you know, um, I, she says, the one thing I know how to do, she tells my buddy, she says, the one thing I know how to do is, is, is cook, bake. And she says, in fact, a lot of people say my muffins are heavenly. And she says, so I thought, I'm going to bring heaven on their earth. <laughs> so the next morning she goes out, she makes a, from scratch uh, six blueberry muffins and gives them to the kids. And the kids just scarf them down immediately. And she goes back up to her apartment. She just, just made her day. And that night she's going, I'm going to do that again tomorrow. She goes, does it the next day, does it the next day. The kids are just, man, they devour these, these muffins. And so, and she, she had told him, she said, I'd never ever seen more than four or five kids at this spot. By Thursday, there were seven kids. <laughs> and they had to actually divvy up the muffins. Well, by Friday, there were nine kids. She's done this five days in a row. Next Monday, she comes up with two muffin pans. There's 12 kids. By the end of the week, there's between 15 and 18 kids showing up. <laughs> She's done this for two weeks, and she's starting to get to know the kids and everything, and so four weeks later, she gets a knock on it. So she's six weeks into it. She gets a knock at the door, and it's her apartment manager, and he says, uh, hey, Vivian, can I talk to you? And he'd been there about seven years. He knew her situation and everything. She said, hey, look, um, I want to talk to you about your interaction with the teenagers, and she, she told my buddy, she said, I thought he thought I was a gangbanger. A <laughs> 78-year-old, even hear her say that would be weird. You know, but, you know, and I'm drugging, you know, these are my mules, you know, and so, um, 
And so uh, he says, no, no, you're not in trouble. He said, look, he said, we just had a staff meeting. And she said, he said, you've lived here. You've been here longer than I have. You know all the vandalism we have, windows broken, holes in the walls, tagging, all kinds of stuff. And he said, in fact, he gave her a dollar figure. He said, we set aside this much in our budget every month just to fix the stuff that happens from the young people tearing stuff up. He says, in four weeks, we haven't had, one, we haven't had a scratch on the wall. I've never had, he says, I've never seen a week go by. And he said, we were all this morning trying to figure out what's going on. And he said, somebody goes, it's Vivian and those muffins. <laughs> and uh, so he says, look, I know that you, things are tight and it must even be expensive for you to be doing this. And he said, what, he said, your rent is half of what we spend just to fix stuff. And if you will, I want to make a deal with you. If you'll keep making these muffins, your rent will be free from this point on. And this really happened. And I always out pastors sometimes we add a little bit to make the story sound good it's the gift you of exaggeration yeah yeah yeah, right. yeah i'm not even doing that on this one so um <laughs> what happens then over the next several weeks she's in months she starts becoming really intimate with these kids and with their moms and and long story short um and after nine months there's 25 to 30 kids consistently going to church with her she got all of our widow friends coming and picking them up in their condo cords and stuff on Sundays and kids getting baptized moms getting off drugs it's crazy stuff to the point where nine months later her church bought two vans just to take her kids to she's like a seven she she tells me my buddy she said I'm a 78 year old youth pastor <laughs> and uh she said I just want to tell you that's what's happened in the last year uh just because she took what was in her hand and she said I'm going to bring heaven on earth I'm going to let the word become flesh in my neighborhood. That's awesome. That is awesome. So would you go ahead and stand? We're going to conclude. I, I wanted Lance to tell that story because uh, in conversations I've had with so many people, we, we always feel like, well, that's a great story for that person, but I could never do that. The same spirit that lives in Vivian is the same spirit that lives in each one of us. And if we pray and ask the Lord to show us where does he want to bring heaven on earth, where, does he, where is he at work? God can do that over and over and over again in our city mm -hmm. and change the lives of people if we are willing to be the church. We don't gather to be the church. We are the church. And you've heard that from Lance this morning. And this is the direction and this is the shift that we're walking through as a church. This is exciting. It really is. It's scary, but following Jesus is scary. But it's extremely exciting to, to know that God would want to use us to accomplish his mission in our community. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for Lance. I thank you for his willingness to come and to share. And Lord, I thank you for the journey that you led him on. And Lord, how that's brought uh, not only, Lord, change in the lives of people around him, but incredible change in his own life. Lord, I thank you for the journey that you have us on as a church family and what you're doing in each one of us. You're opening our eyes to things that we haven't seen before. And I pray that you would continue on it. Even this week, Lord, that, that when we find our, ourselves at home, at work, at school, even in our commutes, that, Lord, that you would allow us to pray the prayer. Lord, show us what does, what does heaven look like on earth in front of me? What do I need to be doing that you've gifted me to do, Lord, for the sake of our city and for the sake of the world? We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.